United Nations Global Compact presents Listen Up, a podcast about making better choices for a sustainable future. So why don't you just grab a seat and listen up, listen up, listen up, listen up. Hey, listen up. Greetings from the United Nations Global Compact in New York. I'm Dan Thomas, and you're listening to Listen Up, a podcast series on the young and not so young business leaders driving change in their companies in order to create a more sustainable world. Who says profit and purpose can't go hand in hand? Today, I'll be talking to Dale Lewis, the Chief Executive Officer of Community Markets for Conservation, Comico, a membership organization for farming households to tackle food insecurity, increase self-sufficiency, protect the environment, combat the climate crisis, and improve household incomes through sustainable farming. It's really nice to speak to you, Dale. Where are you sitting right now? And where would you rather be? I'm in a little town called Chipata. I'm in a house that my wife and I designed. I'm up on the second floor, sort of a loft, with nice windows where I can see trees. In our prior life, we lived on the banks of the Luangwa River. That may not mean much to you, but it's a river that flows for many miles through a valley that is rich with wildlife, beautiful. And it's where I spent many years studying elephants and watching people sort of adapt to difficult challenges, dealing with poverty and and living with wildlife. And all that experience brought me to what we're doing today. That's an amazing uh, image. And and actually, I've actually visited Chapata myself, doing some filming doing some filming okay. for UNICEF many years ago. But I uh, first of all, uh, I, I would absolutely love to. It's a beautiful country. So let's, let's start at the beginning because you, you started off with your, your journey to Africa as a conservationist. So tell us a little bit about those, that early, that first trip. How did that inspire you to spend so much time on the continent? And, and how did that spark something within you? So I'm sitting up in a tree studying the white-brown sparrow weaver for my PhD. It's a bird that is communal. They live in family groups. I was going to be an academic and studying evolutionary biology. And off in the distance, on many occasions, I would hear the rattle of machine gun fire. And the sight of slaughtered elephants disturbed me. And I asked myself, what am I doing up in a tree watching birds? Maybe there's a higher calling. And One thing led to another. I had never even studied elephants, but it was just just obscene that that this was an incredible animal that was being slaughtered almost on a daily basis. Long story short, I wrote a proposal and asked for a ridiculously small amount of money, something less than $3,000 that was going to allow me to do research for two years. So... Obviously, the organization that I wrote to said, you know, if this guy is that crazy and thinks he can do research for two years, let's give him the money and see what he can do. I was used to living off pretty much off of nothing. I, you know, worked from a bicycle and ate local foods. My research assistants were from the local village. And I sort of shifted gears and went into elephant research. Wow, what an amazing change, and I'll never regret it. But I soon realized that $3,000 wasn't going to be enough. So I pretty quickly learned that I have to raise money. 
And I think that's probably been my second calling in life is to keep raising money for the work that I do. But I, I went out and, and we studied elephants and studied elephants. And, you know, what was interesting was my research assistants, I called them the dirty dozen because we were all dirty and smelly in those days. They were all local people who told me much about how they lived. And I was very close to all of them. And, and I sort of, I think I have an anthropologist gene in me. And what all I was hearing and seeing was something that was more important than just studying elephants. It was about studying people and, and what were their problems that, that were the underlying reasons for why they poached. And those reasons were primarily lack of food and lack of income, just that simple. I, I did a quick little research on the back of an envelope and looked at how much money was being spent by donors, all the multinational NGOs, and it was an amazing amount of money. And I got to know some of these people in that field, and I saw how much money they were making in terms of their salary and driving around with fancy vehicles, doing all these projects. But to be quite honest, the problem wasn't going away. I had a meeting with some of the community leaders because I had realized at that time that so much of the problems were being driven by companies that were asking farmers to farm non-food crops. And they were asking them to farm in ways that were not healthy for the soils. And as a result, they kept cutting down the trees to get more farmland. So these companies sort of had a pretty good deal. They had cheap labor and they were not accountable for the destruction they were doing to, to the habitat. So when people came up with a shortage of food, many of them, their solution was to, if they had a gun, they would go out and use it one way or another. Sometimes it was an elephant that was sacrificed. So at this meeting, I asked him, I said, look, guys, what's the answer? I'm an elephant biologist. I don't, I don't know. But what do you think? And they said, stop giving all the uh, markets to these outsiders. Give the opportunities to us and we'll do the conservation. And I, I said, well, you know, I, I, I can't think of a better, better answer myself. I've never run a company. I don't have a, a slightest idea about how to run a company. But why don't we do it? And why don't we call this company Community Markets for Conservation? So we shook hands and we walked away and I realized me I made a promise. So when you make a promise, well, you have to keep it. <laughs> so over the past 18 years, I've been trying to keep my promise to run a company for the community. We've become very close. We're working with 89 chiefdoms in three different provinces in the country. We have now over 200 and literally over 240,000 farmers who have signed their conservation pledge. We have six different processing lines as close to the communities as we can to make it uh, reasonable, but cost effective. And I honestly think we've somehow created some kind of movement because we're changing lives and doing, they're doing things that they believe in. And they see a relationship with Kamako, our company, that is their company. They've worked just as hard as I have. Tell us a little bit about your company. You know, what's the main purpose? How did you start? The first question is, it, it is a company. It, it's a um, difficult to describe in some ways because it's not a typical company. We really work not to necessarily make profit, but to make other people have profit. And the deal is, if we can make conservation profitable, then we ask them to do the conservation. The reality, however, because it is a company, we do have to break even and run it in a responsible business-like way. 
And we've we've learned, I think, uh, many lessons in that process, having come from an NGO background, that not out of any great insight or stroke of genius, I think we've just sort of stumbled into a solution that we've begun to realize that we can actually make conservation work, I think, much more effectively and ultimately more sustainably through a business approach and, and doing a business in a fair and honest and in inclusive way with a lot of people, hundreds of thousands of people that are living out there, bringing them opportunities and, and their willingness to reciprocate doing things that they have learned that make their lives a bit easier uh, and better. Tell us a little bit about the early days, uh, getting the business set up, uh, persuading people of the business model. What kind of obstacles did you encounter? How did you overcome those? Well, let me let me back up a little bit because there is a little bit of a story before the business, and that was a study I did that we wanted to test, want to be absolutely sure that food security was an important variable, and, and we wanted to know how important it was. I'm going to leave out a lot of details just for the sake of time, but I managed to find some money, and I got an agreement from a particular chiefdom where I knew there was a lot of snaring and poaching. Snaring is when you put out a wire loop and the animal gets impaled and they're, they're caught and the person presumably would come and then kill the animal. That's called snaring. A lot of snaring. A lot of animals were being killed that way. So we artificially and very quickly solved the food security problem by bringing the food in and we distributed to the families and we didn't, we didn't say anything. We said, no, we're going to help you this wet season. Every family got three 50 kg bags of, of maize. And we watched to see what happened. And the data was collected. And I didn't even analyze the data. I wanted someone else to do it quite independently. And it was amazing. The snaring levels dropped by over 50%. And school attendance went right through the ceiling. I didn't expect that. Well, I went down to World Food Program with this data. I uh, didn't even go with with a prior meeting. I just walked into their offices and looked for somebody that I could sit down with to share the data. I was very lucky. I, I met the right person. And when he saw these data, he got interested. And he said, well, what would you like me to do? I said, well, I'd like to have a lot more maize and see if we could scale this and see if we could do it and test it again. And so for about, I believe, two or three years, I, I got a lot of support from World Food Program. It was amazing. And people were quite willing to now learn new farming practices in exchange for receiving this food. But it was pretty obvious that we couldn't sustain this with World Food Program. And this idea of running a company now was more, more imperative. In that area, um, of, in the Luangwa Valley, the real cash crop was rice. The only trader was a certain person. I won't go into his name or what those details, but he was very wealthy. And and I, I went to him with and he was not aware that I was thinking about one day maybe competing with him. But I asked him, how do you do it? And he said, Dale, it's very simple. You go down there as soon as you can after the rains, because that's when the farmers are the poorest and they're desperate for money for school fees and they'll sell their rice for next to nothing. So you'd have to ask yourself, who really is the poacher? So now I'm really beginning to understand what we're up against. And so I decided to buy my first 30 tons of rice. 
without knowing really what to do with it. So I managed to scrape together the money and took the rice down to Lusaka, the capital city in Zambia, to a milling company. And really, they offered me such a a low price, there was no way I could make it work sustainably. And it was at that point, I said, "We, we have to create our own brand and now go into value addition. On the way back from Lusaka, I was traveling with my wife. And I said, you know, Julia, this is not going to work unless we come up with a name, a good name for a brand. She's an artist and and very creative. It was like in a matter of seconds. She said, why don't we call it It's Wild? And um, (laughs) I said, I mean, I knew she has a high IQ, but I mean, that was just an amazing answer. I said, yeah, let's go with that. And so that's that's been the brand from the very beginning. So we've learned things and had a lot of luck. And that was one of the stroke of lucks right there to get a brand name like It's Wild. So you, you created this business. You, you entered the marketplace, actually, in a, in a competitive sense by presumably offering the local farmers the opportunity to sell to you at a, at a fair price. And then you were able to sell, sell enough uh, rice in the marketplace to, to give back some of that profit into the, into the community. Well, not not quite, because as I said earlier, I, I did not and do not have a business degree, which actually was very fortunate because I think if I had a business degree, I would have never done what I did. You'd have to be crazy. How can you build a company around farmers that don't know how to farm? I mean, who's going to do that? And so my motivation was to give them as much money as I could. And I didn't even have a spreadsheet to make this calculation. But I said, well, if this guy's giving him that much, let's just triple the price. I'll figure out how I'll find the money. And it, it triggered just an amazing transition from farmers that were not growing rice, who could have grown rice. At that time, 17% of the farmers were growing rice. In a matter of a few years, I don't know exactly, but it was a fairly short time, we got that percentage over 70%. So now farmers had a cash crop, totally working, not in a profitable way. But I changed things. Yeah, it costs money, but people now had food, they had income, and people were surrendering the guns, and poaching was becoming less and less. And so it's it has been this sort of transition of now getting the incentives to learn farming, get more higher yields less costly inputs, and bring the business equation into a more sustainable proposition. You, you tripled the price that this, the, the main buyer was, uh, was offering. How did you make that into a sustainable business? By paying three times as much, presumably you had to sell a lot of rice. Well, you have to it. realize that he was, he was definitely cheating the farmers. So the, what was the real value? The real value is what the markets will pay. And the real value also is how you package and brand and the quality of the rice. I'm selling the brand and a quality of product that we're just sort of tweetering on sustainability. But we're also selling the story for which I think a lot of people now these days are interested in getting behind because I think it has that potential of really going to scale. Are you seeing this replicated in other countries? I mean, you're doing it in in Zambia. Presumably it could work in in many countries. I can't answer that question because we never tried. 
And again, I don't know, you've, you've got to have a stomach for this and the years. And I've just been lucky. Like I said, I, I have a wife that's put up with me for all these years. It's not easy. So tell us about the, the, the way you've approached business. I mean, it's not just about the, the market, the market price, the sustainability of the product. You're really looking at the entire community and the effect that enterprise can have on the entire community, the, the schooling of children, the, the food security for the local population, and of course, the conservation aspects so that nobody's going out to kill elephants for ivory because uh, they've got enough food to eat and enough money to send their children to school. Tell us a little bit about that holistic mindset and the way you've approached business in that sense. No, that's probably the most important question I think you could ask, because at this point, we have learned a lot. And I think what we have evolved in becoming is, first of all, a company with a very dynamic team of, of very, very dedicated Zambians that hold very senior positions in the company and work very hard at what they do. And I, I thank them and uh, admire them for the contributions that they've made, because it's certainly much bigger than just me. And the other, I think, very important component is the way in which the communities have themselves have transformed. And what's quite interesting about this transformation is that, yes, the first, you know, 10 years was very much a kind of an experimental effort to really test the model, refine it, learn the technologies, learn the kind of farming systems. I haven't talked about that, but there is a farming system that we've developed that is, I think, underpins in many ways the whole company. But when you help people who are good, honest people, they have families, they're intelligent, but they've never known that they were intelligent, never had a chance to be because they were caught up with their problems. They can become incredible leaders. And we've given them a chance to be leaders by organizing all of our farmers into cooperatives. And we've worked very much with these cooperatives. We have 103 cooperatives that we've formed, most of which are now registered legally. And incidentally, in the past year, a, a big chunk of those cooperatives have now formed a federation. And, and you can see the level of leadership and the quality of people that honestly believe in Kamako. Can you run a business like this and still make enough profit to make it sustainable? Now we come to the real $10 million question. Yes, but here's how we do it. I didn't realize this when we started, but as a result of the kind of farming that we do, again, I haven't really talked about that, but two things that we're doing, and this is where our colleagues from Shell comes in. We're putting carbon in the soil and we're keeping trees from cut down and reduce the CO2 emissions that would have happened. And capturing that carbon in, in, a, in a real market of selling carbon credits provides us a very significant cash flow that can help us bridge those gaps to make the company sustainable. As we continue to grow, I am also of the view that even if we are not sustainable, which I think we could be, and, and that's what we're in the process of developing a strategic plan for the next five years. We've done a huge amount of financial analysis of our different sections, our cost profit sections. But even if we are not sustainable, this is an important point, 
the multiple additional indirect benefits that can be translated into monetary terms, which we have had uh, what's referred to as true cost accounting of a social enterprise, are in so much more than the gap from what separates us from being break even. That one would have to believe if if we are repairing the land and keeping biodiversity safe, that that relatively small cost compared to the cost that we would lose otherwise, somebody, it should be government, examining government not, doesn't have enough money to do these things. So we've got to find people that we can communicate to, and that's where we're not very strong. We haven't done a great job on telling our story. But you think there are people out there in the world who are willing to invest real money in a business like this for their own reasons in order to increase their sustainability is what you're saying. I spend a lot of my life right now, I'm trying to answer that question with a yes. I do believe it, it's a yes, but it's, it's a hard yes. Dale, we've come to our, our rapid fire round of questions. If you could answer these questions in, in 30 or 60 seconds or less, that would be great. Firstly, what kind of car do you drive? A Land Cruiser pickup. Very good. I guess you need that in, in Zambia. That's good for the environment that you're, you're working in. Here's a question. What would you find most difficult to give up? Red meat or flying? Red meat. And why is that? Well, we have a great garden and I love beans. And um, I could eat beans, I think, probably every day with rice and soy sauce. I, I just love that. What's your most embarrassing, most unsustainable secret, your guilty pleasure? <laughs> yeah, we'll pass on that one. Over drinks late at night, maybe you'll get that out of me. Have you ever hugged a tree? Oh, I think I have many times and in many different ways. Yes. Tell us about that. How come? Well, I've measured trees. I've gone out and done surveys. I've, I've looked at how they produce fruits. I've tagged trees. Over the years, I've looked at the what they call the phenology, how, how trees fruit, how they flower, how they mate, how they live and interact with each other as part of the ecosystem. I've watched elephants. Elephants taught me so much about trees because they eat trees and the way they select different parts of the trees. And to learn why they pick that part and not another part just opened my whole eyes to the complexity uh, of nature. And that's what makes nature so, so incredibly rich. You, you, you just have to take the time to look at it. What's the most surprising thing you've learned on your sustainability journey? To be really honest, I think is the role that women play in, in farming, that they're so caring as mothers normally are to their crops, the way they farm, how serious they are about becoming better farmers. And I think they've become many, in many ways, our champions. For example, the chairman of the federation of our cooperative is a woman, Esther Zulu, a really amazing woman. And I see her as a champion of many other women out there that we'll be proud of one day. And uh, complete this sentence. You might want to think about a career in sustainability because... It's very gratifying. It's needed. It will occupy your whole life with giving you many challenges, which is what I think life should be about. 
It's not easy. I don't think life necessarily should be easy because it gets boring. Nothing boring about trying to build sustainability around an idea like Kamako. You've been listening to Listen Up, a podcast series from the United Nations Global Compact on the business professionals who are driving sustainability in their companies in order to create a more just, equitable and sustainable world. I'm Dan Thomas, and I'd love to hear from you, our listeners. So please let me know what you think by writing to me at thomas at unglobalcompact.org and tell me, who should I talk to next? Goodbye. You've listened to the United Nations Global Compact Podcast. Now it's up to you. Be bold and take action. And don't forget, listen up. Listen up.